when the jury went to deliberate on my sentence, they took Johnny Bowie up in front of the same judge, Kim Hammond, and he got his death sentence. So Johnny came down, put him back in the cell, and the officers come and said, listen, we're not going to fly you out yet. We're ready to go. The helicopter's here, but we're waiting on him. And I looked, and they're like, yeah, we're waiting on you. The helicopter's on standby. Ontario native Russ Davies is serving life in prison for murder. He was spared the death penalty. He didn't fire the fatal shot, according to him and witnesses who watched Jack Cheney get killed 32 years ago near Daytona Beach. All Russ Davies wants is a transfer to his homeland of Canada. His story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the 11-year prison sentence for a 19-year-old woman who helped orchestrate a carjacking one year ago in South Daytona that seriously injured a teenage boy. It was a reduced sentence from the original 20-year sentence she received last summer, which caused so much anguish for her and her mother that their unbridled emotion, which was captured on video and went viral, caused the judge to take another look at the case. Then later, I'll discuss the case of Russ Davies, also convicted at the less-than-ripe age of 19. He was sentenced to life in prison for the June 1986 slang of Jack Cheney. But witnesses at the scene said another man fired the fatal bullet. That shooter, as well as Davies' four other co-defendants, served sentences ranging from two years behind bars to probation. Davies is seeking a transfer to a Canadian prison to be closer to his parents, who are in their 70s and no longer can travel to visit their son. You'll hear more from Davies, as well as his parents and two Canadians who are advocating for his transfer. Coming up, the story about the South Daytona teens carjacking case. My special guest for that segment will be News Journal reporter Kazmira Harrison. That was a portion of the courtroom reaction from the mother of Keandria Cook, the moment she heard the judge sentence her daughter to 20 years in prison. Cook, who was 18 at the time, received that sentence last June after pleading no contest to carjacking and battery charges. Last week, she was sentenced to 11 years. Cook never saw the original 20-year sentence coming. Neither did her mother, LaShonda Ponder, or her defense attorney, Frank Scott. Even the prosecutor in the case, John Reed, who watched as Cook's mother collapse to the floor crying, looked surprised. Reed had waived the minimum sentencing guideline to give the judge more leeway. The judge had the option of going below the mandatory minimum of 10 and a half years 
Instead, Circuit Judge Matthew Foxman, inside the very courthouse named after his father, the late James Foxman, sentenced Cook to 20 years for the carjacking charge, 15 years for the attempted carjacking with a deadly weapon charge, and 15 years for the felony battery charge. They were to be sentenced concurrently. The News Journal wrote about the carjacking that took place in March 2017. A 17-year-old boy was shot. He survived following emergency surgery. Cook was not the shooter, but she had set up the carjacking by communicating with the boy's friend through a dating app. That friend thought he was meeting up with Cook to have sex with her. Instead, they were joined by a gunman who tried to steal their vehicle and opened fire on them. The News Journal had not intended to cover Cook's sentencing. The shooter at the time was still at large. My colleagues, reporter Kazmira Harrison and photojournalist Jim Tiller, were in court for another matter. Kazmira recently sat down with me to talk about that day and how Cook's appearance before the judge caught her and Jim's attention. Uh, when we started getting interested in the case, when they started talking about the Meet Me app, and I started recognizing who it was, and so did Jim. So right before the judge ruled is is when we started seeing, you know, okay, well, maybe we should we should cover this, too. Moments later came the emotional reaction from Ponder. Casimira remembers it as clearly today as she did the second she left the courtroom. The mother screaming bloody murder. Uh, she 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 was wailing in that courtroom, and it just it it was indescribable. And the interaction between her and her mother watching her, um, and them having to drag uh, Keandria out the door. Jim's video was posted later that day on the News Journal website. It was shared on Facebook and other social media sites various times. In all, more than one million people viewed it. Here is the audio from the full 80-second clip. Be guilty of all three charges. Sentence you to 20 years in state prison. The judge continued explaining Cook's sentence while she begged for mercy. 
Other relatives came into the courtroom to remove Ponder, who was on the floor. Kazmira said she was caught by surprise at how quickly the video and her accompanying story went viral. Yeah, I was I was surprised as it went throughout the day. I was just trying to get the story out so I could work on the story that I I went there for, which was which was the the hoarding story, and and so I, I just wanted to kind of get this story out the door. And as the night wore on and it started getting hits, I was like, oh wow, um, this there's some interest here. <laughs> Here's the background of the case. On March 22, 2017, 27-year-old Nita and 17-year-old Manny Purcell drove from Flagler County to meet Cook at her job at Long John Silver's in South Daytona. Nita later told detectives he planned to meet Cook to have sex with her and to sell her marijuana. The two had started corresponding using the chat and dating app Meet Me. Nita invited Purcell so that Purcell could sell Cook the marijuana. When they showed up at the restaurant, there was no sign of Cook. But she contacted the pair via the phone app and told them to meet her at a house on a residential street. They met up a short time later and Cook got into Nita's pickup. Moments later, a masked gunman also got into the vehicle. Purcell put up a fight, and it was during that fight that the masked gunman fired two rounds, one of which struck Purcell in the lower abdomen. The boy survived his wounds after emergency surgery, but the bullet had sliced through his large intestine and got lodged near his pelvic bone. The investigation led back to Cook, who was arrested five weeks later by South Daytona police. Detectives identified the shooter, 17-year-old Kendrick Bass, but there were rumors at the time that he had moved to Miami. In January, Bass was finally arrested in Daytona Beach. Police had said to me that Cook was not forthright about Bass's whereabouts, and that may have contributed to her 20-year sentence. Ponder told the News Journal last June that her daughter's sentence was too harsh, but admitted that what she had done was wrong. She also said her daughter had gotten involved with some less than desirable members of society, and her poor judgment was a result of being influenced by them. Ponder also pointed out that Foxman had recently given lighter sentences to defendants who committed worse offenses and used guns during those offenses. They also happen to be white. Her daughter is black. Here was another wrinkle in the story. Cook's attorney at the time, Frank Scott, left a message on Ponder's answering machine telling her that her daughter was likely going to avoid prison altogether. Here is that audio. Hey, Lashawn, that's Frank Scott from the PD's office for Jerry Call. Sorry, Mr. Call, before. I've uh, been talking to the prosecutor. I think we've, uh, we're getting close to uh, resolving um, Kandria's case. Um, and uh, yeah, obviously, she's not going to prison. Uh, she has no prior record. So, I mean, she's looking at uh, probation or community control. Um, so, uh, but give me a call on Monday so I can uh, talk to you a little bit about uh, what we have in mind to resolve the case. And uh, we'll take it from there. 
Much of this information was obtained by the News Journal after Kazmira's original story was published. It had generated so much attention that it warranted more digging and more stories, all of which were widely read. It also led to Judge Foxman withdrawing that 20-year sentence. Cook wound up being released on bail for a period of time as she awaited her resentencing. But she wound up being thrown back in jail after authorities discovered she violated the conditions of her release by speaking to the accused shooter during two jailhouse phone calls. Last week, she went before Foxman to be sentenced again. This time, she wasn't blindsided. Foxman sentenced Cook to 11 years. On top of that, he also gave her 20 years probation, which will run concurrent to her prison time, meaning she'll be serving her probation while locked up. By the time she's released, and after taking into consideration the time she's already served, she'll have about 10 years of probation remaining. Cook told the judge, quote, I apologize for my actions to the victim's family and victims. I am a changed person. I did learn my lesson from all this. She also pledged to straighten her life and to set an example to others to not make the same mistakes she made. Foxman told her he believed she had some good in her and urged her not to lose sight of that. He did point out, however, that the police investigation uncovered another carjacking she had participated in, one that took place soon after the one that had led to the shooting. Foxman said he couldn't overlook that. Ponder was in the courtroom during the hearing that took place last Monday. She remained composed for that one. She told a News Journal reporter that the entire situation was tragic, but added that the judge was fair to her daughter and that justice was served. Bass is still awaiting trial for his charges. Here is Kazmira talking to me about what she took away most from that day last June and what others took away from it after they watched the video. It was the humanity and the sudden realization of what she was losing that was seared into my memory. I mean, because you see people taking their sentencing and it's almost as if they're disconnected from it in many, many cases. But in this case... It was like all of a sudden she knew that what she had done and, and how she had hurt her mother and and everyone, I think the video especially, everyone could suddenly connect to that. Coming up, the story about Russ Davies, his life, his crime, his trial, his sentencing, his life in prison, and his persistent hope for a transfer to his homeland of Ontario. John Cavallaro says, kill him, kill him, kill him, and I can't move. And that's when John grabbed the gun from him and pushed me back. It looked like he kicked him, but maybe that time side, it looked like he did, but his back was to me at that time. And he shot him. That was it. There was nothing else. That was all there was to it. On March 30th, 1988, 19-year-old Russ Davies stood before a judge and was found guilty of first-degree murder 
in the slang of Jack Cheney. A 28-year-old vagabond who was part of a small gaggle of misfits that Russ himself had joined just weeks earlier. The shooting was in early June 1986. The exact date is not known. Cheney's skull, bones, and clothes were found about seven weeks later near Bullow Creek State Park outside Ormond Beach. When Davies was convicted, his mother began crying and screaming. She had to be physically removed from the courtroom. Davies showed no emotion, but the stress of the trial had caused his skin to break out in rashes. Jurors voted not to send him to the electric chair. The judge agreed and sentenced him to life in prison. A helicopter was outside waiting to take Russ to death row in Rayford, but it took off without him. Russ is now being housed at Hardy Correctional Institution in Bowling Green. During his 32 years of incarceration in Florida, he has had stints inside some of the state's most notorious penal facilities. That includes the Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys, where makeshift graves were dug for those residents a decade or two earlier who were suspected of being killed and buried there by an abusive, violent staff. Records show that Russ's fellow misfits, his co-defendants, got together to work on a story for investigators, and they pinned Cheney's murder on Russ. There were six defendants total. The Canadian teen lawyered up the moment he was confronted by Volusia County Sheriff's detectives. He didn't answer their questions. But his court-appointed lawyer, Russ told me, didn't do him any favors. He also was shown little mercy by the judge, who called him a hoodlum before he was sentenced to life. Russ didn't fire the shot that killed Cheney, not according to witnesses and not according to Russ. Even one of the eyewitnesses who testified during Russ's trial said it was another person who fired the fatal bullet into Cheney's skull. It was that bullet that caused Cheney's legs to stop kicking. Everyone arrested in Cheney's slang other than Russ, including the actual killer, served two years or less. A couple of them only got probation. Russ has been denied parole. His next parole hearing won't be scheduled until next year, but he's not clinging to any hope for parole. He wants to be moved to Ontario. Russ, whose full name is William Russell Davies, is inmate number 111211. He turns 50 years old next month. He was less than a month past his 18th birthday when Cheney was killed. Russ was a misguided youth then. He had a temper. He committed crimes. He didn't make good choices, big or small. He insisted to me that he's changed now. He's not seeking freedom. He's just seeking a move. Russ's parents, Richard and Carol Davies, are now in their mid-70s and are both ailing. Neither is physically able to travel to Florida to visit. Russ just wants to be closer to them. I've said it before, if they welded me in a box and sent me to Canada and told me I couldn't leave the box for the rest of my life, I'd still want to go to Canada because of the fact that me being here is killing the people out there that never did anything wrong. 
The Canadian government has contacted Tallahassee three times during the past several years, notifying the governor's office that it would like Russ back. Governor Rick Scott hasn't answered. Russ has been getting help from the people back home, not only in the form of moral support, but they have been lobbying the governor for a transfer. Two of those advocates are Mary Beth Denemy and Ellen Gardner. Both of them spoke to me about Russ's sentence, which they think is an outright injustice. Not only do they think he was wrong to trial, but a life sentence seems so extreme. Here is Denemy talking to me about the cultural divide between Americans and Canadians when it comes to criminal justice. We're Canadians. We live right next door to the United States. You, we feel like we're almost one. We watch American television. It, 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 it travels seamlessly across the border. But it's a different world when it comes to the, um, the correction system in the United States. And I don't think Russell had any idea what a mess he was in. Just like we didn't have any idea when... Florida? What, 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 what's the, you know, we, we've learned over the years what a difference there is between Canada and the United States, especially when it comes to crime and their approaches to, to the law. Russ Davies was born May 19, 1968, the third of four sons born to Richard and Carol Davies. The family lived in southern Ontario. As a child, Russ loved to be out in the country. When Russ was around 12 years old, his grandmother, who he was especially close to, passed away, and the family moved from the country to the suburbs. Uh, we went from a very rural country area. We moved to a place called Richmond Hill, north of Toronto, a suburb. The lifestyle was totally different. Fitting into the new school was really difficult, and it was just, okay, forget it kind of attitude. Russ wasn't a follower. He made up his own mind on what to do, and others followed. He defied authority constantly. Here is Russ's father, Richard, talking to me about the kind of teenager his son was. And from then on, he started to gravitate to, let's say, people that we probably wouldn't have chosen to have him be friends with. He seemed to gravitate to people that were getting into trouble, not following rules at school, not following rules at home. Russ went to reform school. It didn't work. At 15, he dropped out of school. At 16, he was emancipated from his parents, although he still lived with them. He just paid them room and board. He was candid when he talked to me about how far gone his relationship was with his parents back then. Is there such a thing as a minus scale in this question? <laughs> uh, I just, there was no communication, none whatsoever. There, it, I would call it no relationship at all at that point. I think they, they just threw up their hands with frustration. As his 18th birthday neared, Russ, who was working a demanding midnight shift at a local bakery called Tim Hortons, and whose home life had completely disintegrated, decided it was time for a break. It wasn't like starting over. It was more like an escape. He was seeking relief from his troubles. 
I'm not even sure starting over would be a good term. I think it was just pressure from everywhere and not knowing how to deal with the pressure at the time was just get away for a little while. He stole his boss's car and headed to the U.S. border. Then he and a friend crossed and just kept going south for more than 1,500 miles. Making it to Florida took guts and guile. Russ had plenty of both. His mom and dad could attest to that, and they did. The gentleman that he was working for at Tim Hortons, he stole his automobile, and someone else or other people were involved. We don't know who. We only know that it wasn't Russell by himself. But that's the vehicle that he used to get from Richmond Hill, which is where we lived, to the border. And apparently, at that point, he got across the border, and we weren't aware of his situation until the men, the owner of the Tim Hortons, contacted us and told us that Russ had stolen his car, and it had been recovered in the States. So he, he abandoned the car before he crossed, but the car was still found in the United States? He dressed up as a woman. <laughs> he dressed up as a woman? Yeah, him. He dressed up as a woman and put Bibles across the front of the car. Well, he was a clever kid, wasn't he? Very. Still is. Russ's friend was Frank Neeson. It was Neeson who rented a car after they crossed the border. Russ found out later how Frank obtained the car. It was rented with a credit card. That you stole? And the credit card was stolen. From your aunt? Afterwards, I found out it was. It's crazy because... Okay, I'm responsible. I was there. The fact was that Frank got the credit card, and I just assumed he had it, and I didn't know that it came from my mom at the time. Russ and Frank didn't know where they were going, but they made up their minds after picking up a hitchhiker outside Atlanta. He said he was going to Daytona Beach. Russ and Frank wanted to go wherever there was sand and water and warm weather. So they, too, zeroed in on Daytona Beach. Frank and Russ stuck together only for a short time. Russ went on his own and traveled to some other places around the state for a couple weeks before turning back to Daytona. By then, Frank had shacked up with a girl he had met, so Russ was totally alone. Not long after that, in May of 1986, he met a couple strangers near State Road A1A. A racial fight was brewing nearby, and they wanted to get away from it. So they asked Russ for a ride over the river, and he obliged. Some other friends tagged along, and there were about six or seven people stuffed in the car. That gang of misfits was known as the family. Russ thought he'd found some new friends. Russ had just turned 18. He was now part of a crowd. They were drifters like him. There was Carrie Parker, who everyone called mom. There was Jack Cheney, a drunkard who was falling out of favor with the rest of the family. Other members were Jimbo Nugent, Big Tim Hagen, George Hughes, and John John Cavallaro. They made up what Russ described to me as the core of the family. Constantly there was people that were coming and going. Uh, 
some were just guys that didn't have somewhere to stay and they ended up in Daytona Beach and they were invited to come over. Some were guys that they knew in the past, girls also, just a, a constant influx. That was like the core of them. Yeah, and back then, Daytona was a magnet for drifters. And that's where most of them went and crashed and hung out and figured out what they were going to do and then moved on from there. Would it be fair to call you one of those drifters types? I would, I'm going to say it like this, I don't like it, but I think it's accurate. Yeah. During early June of that same year, the family was hanging out and contemplating their next move. They knew that a NASCAR race was coming to town in another month. That was going to attract throngs of racing fans. Lots of odd jobs were offered back then to people willing to make some extra bucks during race week. The family intended to take part in that, but in the meantime, the members were robbing convenience stores, stealing beer and cigarettes. They'd sit around and drink and smoke, and when their supplies ran out, they'd go burglarize some more. One time, they targeted a golf course clubhouse, but Cheney, who was driving the car, pulled away early, either because he was spooked or being spiteful. What was known for sure is that some of the family members were forced to walk home, and they were mad at Cheney. On the first Thursday or Friday of June, either the 5th or the 6th, Cheney was driving an old Mercury Cougar. Russ and Cavallaro were riding with him. Cheney, who was already drunk, ran over a curb and smashed the front bumper of the car against some bricks. Russ, who didn't like Cheney, didn't want to ride with him anymore. He asked his other friends, who were riding in a Cadillac sedan, whether he could ride with them. They told him the car was full. Here is Russ telling me why being a part of that particular gang appealed to him. Being somebody, being recognized as a tough guy, wanting to be a tough guy, not being a tough guy. Is that a good way of saying it? Uh, wanting to fit in. The gang headed north in both cars near Daytona Beach and wound up at Tomoka State Park. They wanted to hang out there and drink and smoke, but they spotted a cop car in the distance and decided it wasn't a good place to stay. They headed north along Old Dixie Highway and turned onto a dirt road leading toward a neighborhood park. Parker led them to a spot where there was an open area. They came upon a gate. Cavallaro and Hughes used a crowbar or some other kind of tool to break the chain, and they got onto the property. They parked underneath some power lines and continued drinking. It was nighttime. When Cavallaro drove the Mercury past the broken gate and toward the power lines, he decided to drive backward. Russ was sitting on the hood of the car, and he was afraid Jack's crazy driving would cause him to fall off the moving car. So he told him to stop, but Cheney didn't listen. Russ, by that time, was seething. At one point, Cheney asked Hagen, the alpha dog of the group, whether he could borrow a gas card. He asked that question just as Russ was walking around the car into Cheney's line of sight. Here is Russ describing what Cheney said to him and what happened after that. Maybe you can talk Russ into giving me a to the And at that time, that was it. And I grabbed the gun and I hit him in the side of the head with the gun. And the gun went off. 
Well, Tim Hagen turned around and pushed me down on the ground because he said the bullet, he said the bullet just about hit him. It went winging off. When the bullet went off, how did you react? Stunned you a bit? Everything went slow motion. It was just, everything was just moving really slow at that time. When I got up, because he pushed me down when I stood up, Tim had leaned over him and he said, Jack was on the ground and he was just, he was kicking, like like he was knocked down. And Tim leaned down, he checked his pulse. He said, he's just out cold. You just knocked him out real good. And John Cavallaro says, kill him, kill him, kill him. And I can't move. And that's when John grabbed the gun from him and pushed me back. It looked like he kicked him. But maybe that time side, it looked like he did. But his back was to me at that time. And... He shot him. That was it. There was nothing else. That was all there was to it. Uh, what happened then? He took the gun, put it down my pants, the front of my pants, said, that's how you do it. Now let's get out of here. Everyone realized then it was time to go. The six remaining family members got back on the road and headed back to Daytona Beach. Cheney's body was left there to rot, which it did. Seven weeks later, his remains were found by a hunter. Animals had clearly picked at some of the bones. A crime scene investigator found the 38 caliber projectile in the ground. It was the one fired by Cavallaro that killed Cheney. The bullet fired by Russ was never found. There was something else discovered at the scene. Cheney's wallet. Cheney was born in Seattle. He was 28 years old when he was killed, but he hadn't seen his mother in more than two years. She was contacted by detectives, letting her know that the remains they had found may have been her son's, and they were waiting to see whether the dental records matched. They asked her some basic questions, and she answered them. When they called back to tell her the remains were indeed those of her sons, she asked no questions, and the call ended. Hughes was arrested for an unrelated charge and jailed. The car he was driving, Cheney's Mercury, was impounded. When detectives linked Cheney to that car, Hughes became a suspect. Kerry Parker also became a suspect when a witness came forward to report he had overheard her talking to one or more people about witnessing Cheney's death. Nugent was picked up too. Russ also was arrested on a weapons charge. He lied about his age to a judge. Thinking he was a juvenile, he was sent to Dozier and Mariana. Big Tim Hagen was arrested in Las Vegas that September. Volusia detectives traveled to the Clark County Detention Center to interview him. Based on an investigation report, Hagen told them, quote, I didn't kill that son of a bitch, and I'm not going to jail for it. Those crazies killed him. He was asked to elaborate. He said, quote, The Canadian shot Cheney, and then John removed the gun from Davy's hand and shot Cheney in the head. Me and the others did not know he was going to shoot the guy until he did it. Detectives eventually confronted Russ and Mariana. I was at Dozer. They had called me up to the main office from work, and there they had their entire staff set up. 
and they said, these are officers from the Volusia County Sheriff's Office to talk to you about Jack Channing. And I looked and I was like, excuse me? And they said it again and I said, well, can I have a lawyer? And they said, do you want a lawyer present? I said, of course I want a lawyer present. And that was it. There was no conversation whatsoever from that point on. Cavallero was all who was left. Sometimes, somewhere, somehow, he was picked up and charged in connection with Cheney's death. He was the only suspect not interviewed by the lead detective, so information about his arrest was not disclosed in the reports I obtained from the sheriff's office. The lead detective would later testify during Russ's trial and admit that he never interviewed Cavallero, even though witnesses had fingered him as the shooter. Russ was still at Dozier while most or possibly all of his co-defendants were in jail. They were housed together and collaborated on a story. Perhaps because Russ was the young one or because he was a Canadian or because he fired the first shot or simply because he was housed with juveniles and not with them, he was scapegoated by the family. Russ eventually was moved to the Volusia County Branch Jail, but not until after someone called his father to verify some information. Richard, meanwhile, had no idea of the whereabouts of his son. When he got that call, he got an idea. Not until I got a phone call from a judge in Florida. The judge was Robert E. Lee. And he was calling me to ask Russell's age, because apparently Russell had gotten into trouble, gone before Judge Lee, and lied about his age. So I told the judge Russell's birth date, and the judge thanked me, and we didn't hear any more about Russell until he contacted us when he was in jail being charged with murder. Russ was brought back to DeLand, but still separated from the adult inmates. Even though he wasn't talking to his co-defendants, he found out they were making him the fall guy. He found that out when he saw an ominous drawing on the wall of the law library in DeLand. I guess I'm probably asking you to speculate, and I don't know whether you want to do this, but, you know, they... they were together a lot. They went to the law library a lot. They went to, they had their pretrial hearings together. Did they come up with this story? It's not, I don't have to speculate. I know for sure that they did. The reason why is in, in the Volusia, in the date, uh, Land County Jail, in the law library, that's where you do your lawyer interviews also. So every time I had an interview with my lawyer, that's the room I went to. In the back wall, they had drawn an electric chair in the middle of the back wall. And it had all of their names up to the side with my name over top of the electric chair. And then you go in and you say, see on the table, John, look at book such and such. So I went up with my lawyer there and looked and showed book such and such. Go to this book. So we're going through. Here's what you've got to say is this right here. And Carmen Corrente, who was my lawyer, witnessed all of that. 
So you walked in there and literally taped to the wall. No, drawn on the wall. Drawn on the wall. Actually drawn on the wall. Like a mural. Like drawn a mural. On the wall. Is an electric chair. An electric chair with yes, a sparky on it. Yes. And your name was above it. Yes, sir. And you saw the names of your co-defendants. To the left and to the right. Yes, sir. Russ called home to tell his parents what had happened to him. He had to tell his mother that he was awaiting trial for murder. He, I didn't believe him when he called. So I asked to, if he was, I asked to talk to one of the guards. And he told me, yes, he was charged with murder. Carol didn't hand the phone over to Richard, who at that point had basically disowned his son. Well, Richard didn't bother about Russell for a long time. He wouldn't talk to him. Richard was a music teacher by trade, and at one point he had been selected to serve as acting principal at his school. The full-time principal stepped down for medical reasons, and the acting principal, who originally was selected, was forced out by an angry mob of parents. They didn't think he had the communication skills needed for the job. So Richard was appointed acting principal in September 1987. He spent the next month serving that role, but he was nervous about word getting out that he had a son sitting in a Florida jail accused of murder. If parents found out about that, he thought for sure they would rise up again to remove him. His acute anxiety led him to resigning his position. He slid back into his more comfortable role of music teacher at the school. While Russ was in jail, and as his trial date loomed, he was offered a plea bargain. The offer was 40 years, a monumental amount of time for a 19-year-old. He wouldn't take it. Letters he had written while in jail disclosed a willingness, at least early on, to accept some kind of plea. But he had a change of heart later. He told me during my sit-down with him that he would never have said yes to a lesser sentence if it meant sticking to a lie. I wouldn't have copped out to it if I thought I could have done it in a couple of months. I didn't kill Jack. Even if they had offered you probation or months in probation, you would have... I don't think I would have, no, because I didn't kill Jack. You're, uh, at this point, kind of wayward, kind of a lost soul, but you still had a sense of integrity not to admit to something you did wrong for the sake of a lesser sentence. Can you explain that? I'll try. I'll try. At that time, it was really important for me to have that bravado image. It was really important for me at that time to be recognized as a stand-up dude. Russ's parents both drove to Florida to attend the son's trial, which was held in March of 1988. They were accompanied by a friend, a pastor, who was living in nearby New Smyrna Beach. The trial wasn't what they had expected. For starters, it took only three days. The first day was jury selection. In this day and age, first-degree murder trials in Florida often take weeks or more. Russ was represented by Carmen Corrente, a young court-appointed attorney. Today, he is assistant attorney general in Florida. Corrente declined my request for an interview. He wrote in an email to me that he could not comment on any criminal cases he handled as a defense attorney because of his position working in the criminal division of the state's attorney general office. 
A person familiar with the case said to me that Correnti seemed surprised when he learned that Russ was still serving time in prison. Russ didn't think Correnti gave him adequate legal representation 30 years ago. He told me that the family got him charged with murder, and his attorney put him in prison. Based on the trial transcript, Correnti was less than assertive. During his closing arguments, the young defense attorney told jurors to blame him for not calling Davies to the stand as he had promised. Correnti kept apologizing to jurors. He referred to a pledge he made during his opening statement that he would call one of Russ's co-defendants, Tim Hagen, to the stand as a witness. But he didn't call him either. Correnti told jurors, quote, I made that decision. I apologize for misleading you at the beginning of the trial, but I made that decision because I didn't need to call him. I knew then I was out of gas. I, knew, I, I had no doubt in my mind at that time right there. My thoughts at that time, real talk, were whether I was going to spend life in prison or get the electric chair. A key witness in the case was James Nugent, another one of Russ's accomplices who got a minimal sentence. He was a state's witness, and he testified that he had been drunk in the back seat of the Cadillac. At one point, he pulled himself up and somehow climbed out of the window enough to urinate out of it. At least that's what he said while on the stand. It was while he was relieving himself that he saw Russ slam the gun against Cheney's head and then saw Cavallaro grab the gun out of Russ's hand and shoot Cheney. He confirmed there were two shots fired, one by Russ and the other by Cavallaro. He said he saw Cheney on the ground shaking before the second shot. His shaking immediately stopped, courtesy of Cavallaro. Here is Richard recalling Nugent's testimony. There was some kind of a scuffle between Russell and the victim, and according to what I remember, the gun hit the side of the man's head and fired. He hit the guy with the gun. That's right. Russell hit the guy with the gun on the side of the head, and the gun went off. The man fell to the ground, and the other person standing beside Russ grabbed the gun out of Russell's hand, put his foot on the victim's chest, and bent down and shot him through the lower chin, and the, the, the bullet apparently exited into the ground at the back of his head. Apparently, the police swept a 200-foot radius searching for the second bullet, which they never found, and they never found the gun. Witnesses, including Russ, actually said Cavallaro kicked Cheney before he shot him. A medical expert who took the stand pointed out that Cheney's jawbone had been damaged, and it was unrelated to the gunshot, which corroborates Russ's claim that Cheney had been kicked before he was shot. Prosecutor Gene White, in direct contrast to Carenti, was brimming with confidence throughout the trial. During his rebuttal closing, he told jurors that the state's case against William Russell Davies was the most clear-cut murder case Volusia County had seen for a long time. If it wasn't, he said, he would eat his notebook. 
Richard Davies couldn't see how White was so confident. At the end of the trial, when the jury was charged to go and deliberate, Carol and I and the minister walked out, went for lunch, and said, based on everything that we've seen and heard, there's no way they're going to find him guilty of first-degree murder. Jurors deliberated for two hours. They returned with a guilty verdict. Carol Davies fell to pieces when she heard guilty. There is no known audio of it, but it can be safely assumed, based on the news stories at the time and what witnesses said, that her wails filled the courtroom, which must have been mostly empty, considering Cheney had no ties to the local community and the defendant only had a few people there for him. Carol described to me her reaction. My saying is, I know what Mary felt like when Jesus was crucified, right? I had the same feelings. I was hurt so deep, I couldn't talk. And that's unusual, but I was, my heart was so broken. It was just so broken. And when I, you know, I got to the point where I, the kids worried about me. They were afraid what I might do. And I just... I just had to keep, give it to the Lord. <laughs> or I'd be dead today. But what, what were the words that came out of your mouth? Do you remember? Oh, my baby. Oh, my baby. Oh, my baby. He was just so young. <sighs> Carol Davies had to be carried out of that courtroom. Her husband drove her back to the hotel where he gave her some medication prescribed by her doctor to sedate her. Richard made an astonishing discovery when he drove back to the courthouse. The minister and I went back, and I didn't realize this, but when we went into the court, a helicopter had landed at the helipad next to the courthouse. I went next door to Russell's courtroom because I heard voices in there. Nothing was happening in Russell's courtroom. And Judge Hammond was giving a verdict on another prisoner in that courtroom. So I slipped in and sat at the back. That prisoner was found guilty and his sentence was the death penalty. So apparently if uh, the prisoner was given a death penalty, they were put in shackles and taken to the helicopter to be transported to Union Correctional Institution. Uh, I didn't know any of that at the time, but when we finally went in, my, the minister friend and I went back into the other courtroom. Judge Hammond came in, called the jury in, and they recommended 25 to life. So when I was coming out of the courtroom with Carmen Corrente and my minister friend, the helicopter was taking off with the prisoner that had been found guilty and given the death penalty next door. The helicopter was held in case Russell was given the death penalty, and then both prisoners would have been transported in that helicopter together. A helicopter was on standby to take Russ to death row. 
Canada doesn't have a death penalty. Richard and Carol were appalled at the manner in which Florida shuttles its death row prisoners to Rayford. It did so with such remarkable speed and casualness. That was their thought process at the time. Russ had already braced himself for the worst. He had done so after he consulted with his attorney about whether to testify. Carenti was steadfastly opposed to it. Russ was insistent. Russ said Carenti called for backup to make his case. It was during trial, and I wanted to testify. And Carmen Carenti wasn't letting me testify. He told me that he didn't care. He wasn't going to get me on the stand. And I told him that I was going to get the judge. And he had actually brought my mom down to the holding cell. It was, even my mom was with Carmen on pretty much, you know, this, you're going to do it like this. And after they left and I was sitting there and I'm saying, I, I can't even tell people my point of view. I can't even make a, a, a statement to defend myself. And Your mother uh, was encouraging you to follow your lawyer's advice. Yes, sir. And stay quiet. Yeah. But you wanted to give your side of the story. I figured if I was going to lose, at least I could let people know. At least I could, you know, at least justify it myself or at least finally have my day because I never had my day. I never had anyone ever ask me what happened. I never had that. This was uh, while your trial was going on? This is while the trial was going on, yes, sir. So by that time, you were already thinking, I could lose everything. I could lose my freedom. I could lose my life. Yes, Russ told me he didn't see his mother in the courtroom before the verdict was read. He peeked over his shoulder for a split second before juries entered and saw his father and his pastor friend seated in one of the benches behind him. But he didn't see his mother. He had asked the bailiff to keep her out of the courtroom. He said it was the only time he asked for anything during the trial. He assumed at that point that the bailiff did what he was asked. Then the verdict was read. Then he heard his mother's screams. Russ didn't shed any tears. He just stood still. Circuit Court Judge Kim C. Hammond noticed the defendant's stoic demeanor while his mother was being carried out of the room kicking and screaming. He brought that up when he sentenced the defendant to life. Hammond told the defendant, quote, You've been a burden to mankind. You seem to be without remorse. You're what many of the people in this country and the world despise in young hoodlums. Hammond continued, saying he couldn't understand how Russ's mother could show so much emotion while her son, the person who was getting sentenced, showed no reaction at all. Russ was carted away and transferred to Cross City Correctional Institute, one of the five prisons in which he's been housed. The whereabouts of all the members of the family are not known. I found no records anywhere of Parker, Nugent, or Hagen. George Hughes served prison time in the 1990s for check fraud and aggravated assault. He was released from prison in 1998, and I found no traces of him being arrested anywhere in Florida after that. Cavallero has a long criminal history. 
He is currently serving five years for a 2017 felony battery conviction, and he is being housed in Tomoka Correctional Institution near Daytona Beach. Judge Hammond died in 2017. Among those who eulogized him was U.S. Senator Bill Nelson. Russ harbors no resentment for the judge who sentenced him. I wrote him a letter. I'm going to say it was in the late 90s because it's going to sound crazy. But I try to see the whole thing from his eyes. And uh, I actually, actually thanked him. I actually thanked him because take the situation and put it aside. I mean, the death of Jack, that's not what I'm including in this. But just I couldn't be who I am today without all of that. I don't know if he meant it that way or not, but there's one thing that I remember he said when he sentenced me, and he said that he believes that somewhere inside of me is some good, and he hoped that I found that good. And I'd written him a letter and thanked him, because at that time I really believed that I'd found that good. During the 10 years after Russ's conviction, he and his father had no relationship. Whenever Russ called, he would only speak to his mother. Richard agreed to pay for the collect calls, but he wouldn't answer them. Paying those phone bills irritated him. The teaching job he held ended too. When he returned home from the trial, he didn't think that job would be safe if word got out that he was now the father of a convicted killer. He resigned in June of 1987. His professional life in education, which ended just shy of 25 years, was over. And for years, he blamed his son for torpedoing his career. Richard and Carol soon sold their house in Richmond Hill and moved more than two hours east to Prince Edward County. They opened a bed and breakfast. Two of their guests included Ellen Gardner and her husband at the time. Well, it was just kind of fell in my lap. I certainly didn't go looking for it. Uh, I was uh, with my husband. We were in this rural part of Ontario, and we decided to go to this quite nice bed and breakfast at the suggestion of his dad. And the bed and breakfast turned out to be owned by Russ's parents. So we got to know them a little bit, and they were really friendly people. And this was in the early 90s, probably 91 or 92. And his mom started telling us about Russ, and he was in prison. He'd been in prison for two or three years by then. And my husband, being a lawyer, got very interested in it. And so Carol gave us the transcript, and we read the trial transcript. And then, yeah, we just, certainly he was very, um, he just was struck by the huge injustice of it and that this trial looked like just to be such a sham. Somewhere down the line, Ellen shared the transcript with her friend, Mary Beth Denemy. And we were at a cottage for the weekend, and so I decided to read the transcript because there was nothing else to read that weekend. So it, it was shocking to me, one, how little time it took to read the transcript. Because it was a trial that lasted about seven hours, essentially. It was a day and a half. So they spent seven hours on a trial that put a man away for life. 
They have formed a team to help Russ. They've consulted with lawyers. They've contacted the Canadian consulate in Miami. They've spread the word among Canadians and Floridians about the case. They've reached out to Governor Scott's office. His office gets postcards from Russ's supporters almost every day. Denemy and Gardner have learned a lot about the American judicial system. Well, we certainly have realized that the system is so different in terms of just how um, punitive the system is and that there is an orientation towards keeping people in prison for a long time. In Canada, it's more about rehabilitation and the move to get people out. So, yeah, that's been our kind of amazement with this whole story of Russ, is that how can you lock up this guy who was just 18 for life? It's not in what we know now about the juvenile brain, how he wasn't even a fully formed adult, so not conscious of his actions, and yet the, the, the penalty is so harsh. And I think we've just... just our experience with the system is really only through the lens of seeing Russ's story, but it certainly looks like it's just been a very um, punitive, harsh system with just no remorse for um, giving people a chance. One thing they also have learned is that parole is a long shot. Perhaps it's more accurate to say that a transfer is a long shot, but there seems to be no shot whatsoever for Russ getting paroled. Here they are recalling the last parole hearing Russ had, which took place in 2015. I think it was seven minutes. Yeah, it, there's, it, a, there's a countdown clock. When you <laughs> when you sit down, they hit the clock. So you, there's these numbers counting down on how long you have. I can't remember. It was, it was either it was around. No, it was no more than ten minutes. Around ten minutes. Yeah, and, and they hit the buzzer when they start. <laughs> so we, the first, this was his second parole hearing. The first one, it was kind of a mess up. We didn't even get down for that one. But when we did get down, we that's when we actually hired a lawyer to help us. They out how does this work and this lawyer was really helpful just in terms of telling us you know you can actually meet with the commissioners in advance of the hearing so we met with them and the problem at that time was that Ross had a few now this was getting close to the 30-year mark he had about three or four DRs DRs a disciplinary record considering he'd been in some of the toughest prisons that Florida has I mean prisons where people were dying every week he used to tell us that people were dying and so he was always like it was just a really really tough life there so he had these DRs and they were for those commissioners that was at least they told us that was really the thing that was going to prevent them from even considering parole at that time so we did our 10 minutes but it was uh, it was just not going to it was not going to go our way I wanted to say, are you kidding me? <laughs> he already has a presumptive parole release date of 2042, and they added years to it. <laughs> like they were handing out Smarties. Denemy emphasized to me that she wants to see Russ get transferred to Canada. Should he ever get there, a release is not going to happen with just a signature. Russ, to borrow a phrase from a famous prison movie, 
is institutionalized. He would need to go through a step-down program. We would like to get him transferred back to Canada to serve out his sentence here or to participate in rehab or a step-down reintegration program um, into Canadian society. I think parole is a long shot because uh, the odds of getting paroled in Florida are almost like winning the lottery. But we would like to see him come back to Canada, serve his sentence closer to home, participate in those programs to help him. He's been in jail for 30 years. That's not going to be easy, reintegrating into society. Getting through to Rick Scott has been a major hurdle, more like a wall. One as tall as K2 and just as difficult to scale. Well, we've tried. You know, we realized that the because we there's really the, the two avenues for getting permission for transfer. The first is through the Canadian government, and then it's through the Florida state government. And so Canada has given permission three times for Russ to come back to be transferred. So they send the permission down to Florida and it has that's where it's kind of hit a wall. We've we've really our most of our efforts have been directed at the governor's office trying to find out why they won't get the transfer. They just it's just a it's just a big silence. They don't tell us why they don't even give you an answer. It's just nothing happens. So a lot of our efforts have been directed at trying to um, talk to the governor and just all kinds of campaigns around, you know, this guy has, he would be getting a good support system back in Canada and it wouldn't be just like sending him off, being freeing him. He would actually have to serve out the rest of his time in Canada. In the meantime, Russ's relationship with his father has repaired nicely. Richard admitted that ignoring him all those years had caused him great emotional pain. I guess with age, you mellow. Both my wife and I endeavored to go almost every year to see Russell. I built back a relationship with him. Not talking to him was just eating my gut out. Russ was open with me when he talked about his mother. He wants to be near her, and he doesn't think there's much time remaining for that to happen. I don't expect my mom to live the year. She's that bad off. Every time I talk to her, it's worse. Uh, I don't know if that is what we're going to call psychosomatic symptoms or not. I'm going to say in the last five, maybe six years, I think the person who suffered the most, paid the most, other than Jack and probably his mother was mine. Russ's mother remains hopeful that Russ will be coming home soon. She relies on her faith. I trust God. God promised he'd bring him home. And I know he's going to do it. That's how I do it. Every day I give him to God and God told me I'll bring him home one day. But I don't want to brought home until he's finished what he's doing down there. And I think he's doing a good job because now he's a minister. He's helping a lot of people. And I say he's on a mission field now. <laughs> Governor Scott addressed the Canadian media in November of 2017. He was in Toronto to promote Florida tourism. During the media conference, he fielded two questions about Russ Davies. Here is that clip. 
Sir, I, I would like to ask you about William Russ Davies, who spent 31 years in prison in Florida. Florida refuses to let him transfer back to Canada. Can you say why, or if there's going to be a change of mind on that? Sure. The, the process in our state is we there's a um, commission called the Commission for Offender Review that people have to go through. Um, but in our state, you know, we are very focused on our victims and their families. So meaning you will not send him back to Ottawa when Ottawa says it's okay, he should finish his sentence in Canada? Well, there's a, there's a process in our state. You have to go through the Commission for Offender Review. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Right, Russ is a completely changed man. He gives the impression that he takes solace in knowing that he has bettered his life in spite of his confinement. When he looks back at how he was during his young adult life, the difference between what he was then compared to now is stark. I'm going to say it like this. That kid is dead and gone and been dead and gone. In fact, Sometimes when I look back, I can't even grasp who and what that kid was. I think the only answer I can give is what hasn't changed, and I can't think of anything that hasn't. Russ has maintained hope, but he has no expectations. He remains focused on what he can control. He just wants to continue making improvements each day. So how do you picture this ending? How have you sustained hope throughout through all of this? How do I predict this ending? I predict that today I'm going to affect the life. Tomorrow I'm going to affect the life. And hopefully it just continues like that. Whether it's in here or out there, I'm just going to spend each day, hopefully, affecting a life. And uh, whether I'm there or here, uh, I can only affect or have an effect on affecting a life. The rest of that, that's too big for me to deal with. I wanted to close this podcast with an unedited clip, a two-minute and 20-second portion of my conversation with Gardner and Denemy. They had a lot to say to me about the differences between Canada and the United States. Not in terms of how the justice system is run. Both systems are derived from the same English system of law. It seems to them, though, that the United States stacks the deck against its criminal defendants. It's an observation made by two women who don't consider themselves outside the realm of mainstream Canadian philosophy. They're squarely in the middle of it. I'm a very conservative person. Um, Ellen and I are both conservatives, and um, but when I and I am not one to tell anybody how to run their system or um, what, what's right or wrong. But I can't help thinking that the United States incarcerates more people than any other nation on the planet. I think you've lost your mind. I think you've lost your way on some level of compassion for people and for your fellow man. That's how I feel. Okay. How does that strike you, Joey? <laughs> oh, I'm just. I'm. Just <laughs> well, I mean, the, 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 there. the undi- yeah, the undeniable fact that um, we do incarcerate more than anyone else is. Uh, I mean, that's that's something that needs to be drilled in the heads of more people here. I do sometimes laugh when you say you're, you're a conservative because 
a conservative in Canada is not the same as a conservative in the United States. But you're right. I appreciate well, I appreciate you pointing that out, and, and it's important to point that out you're, that you're not just some um, lefty activist, some hippie activist uh, doing this. No, we are not at all. Which, which is the hilarious part of this is that again, Ellen and I are very conservative people, especially in you know on, on the Canadian scale. We are not left wing NDP voters. The, the thing about this the whole thing, Tony, too, is that, um, and this goes back to the trial, too, is that Canada, and you see, institutionally, the United States and Canada are not that different. It's, it's culturally that we're really different in our, cult, our approaches to justice. And I think Canada takes very seriously the idea that the Crown must prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. And we feel in this case there was just so much doubt and so many errors that it really is to, to convict a man like Russ of first-degree murder, premeditated no less, is really, it just goes against everything um, that we believe in Canada about, yes, protecting the rights of the accused. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I will discuss the murder of DeLand boat salesman Robert Clemente, who was shot to death in April of 1981. The killer was Chicago hitman Peter Ventura, who was sentenced to death for the slaying. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at TonyCrimeWriter or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Thank you.